What do you do after Winnie the Pooh? In this episode, we look at life in the Milne family after Alan decided to stop writing children's books. And we follow Christopher as he grows up, survives a war, and starts a family of his own. Hello everyone, Christine here, to continue our look at the Milne family. And as I said in our last episode, I am really quite excited to get to Christopher Milne's adulthood, because I've truly enjoyed reading about him at length to prepare for this. If you are joining us, having already listened to part one, welcome back. If you are picking up things here, I definitely suggest going back and listening to part one first. Also, if you're looking to learn about Winnie the Pooh specifically, we have an episode for that called, of course, Winnie the Pooh that came out in January of 2022 and is available in all of our episode lists on any app or listening location you choose. Further, don't forget, dear listeners, that if you are looking for a captioned version of this or any episode, you can find those at footnotinghistory.com or youtube.com slash footnotinghistory. When we last left off, the 1920s were ending, and Alan Milne had made the decision to stop writing children's books, including, or perhaps especially, those featuring his son as the character Christopher Robin and the Pooh Crew. The final of his children's books, The House at Pooh Corner, was published in 1928, and it was time to move on to other projects. The thing is, although he couldn't know it at the time, Alan would never have other projects that came even close to the children's story's success, and their popularity never died. In fact, as we talk about what else went on with the Milne family for the rest of this episode, I want you to keep in mind that Pooh and his crew continued to be a part of popular culture and made the family money through royalties along the way. But, unfortunately, in May of 1929, Alan's beloved brother Ken passed away after a long fight with tuberculosis. As he ailed, Alan always went out of his way to make sure that Ken's family was supported, emotionally through letters to Ken's wife and children, as well as financially. When Ken died, Alan was too distraught to attend the funeral, though he visited Ken's grave and he would never stop contact with Ken's widow, Maud. A few years later, Alan went through more family trauma, his father passed away. A conflict over his brother Barry's interference with the content of their father's will, changing it to all but exclude Ken's daughters, proved the final breaking point in their relationship. From 1932 on, Barry was dead to Alan. The end of the Pooh writing era, however, also appropriately coincided with young Christopher Milne leaving the family nest. Just like his fictional counterpart, he would no longer be allowed to do nothing, because he was entering boarding school. Despite Christopher having to carry the weight of being the real-life Christopher Robin in school, this change ended up being a great thing for his relationship with his father. Christopher's school years were a time when he was very, very close to Alan. In part, he attributed this to the absence of his nanny, who was no longer needed to tend to a nursery child and who had been the primary source of Christopher's attachment for so long. Now he was a boy, becoming a young man, and he could start to share an interest with his father. This development, and the duration of the closeness, 
Christopher said it lasted until he was about 18, was important enough to Alan that, according to Christopher, he was very grateful, and once, a little shyly, he thanked me. This was countered by Alan's loving relationship with Daphne entering its rocky period. In 1931, the couple finally visited the United States. While there, Alan was nearly overwhelmed by the number of interviews requested of him. Also, they attended a ton of theater, with Alan noting that American theatergoers at the time liked to go whenever they could, while he felt in England it was something people only did for special occasions. Further, they reunited with Elmer Rice, an American Pulitzer-winning playwright famous for his plays Street Scene and The Adding Machine, who they'd met previously in London. It was Alan's only visit to the United States. It would not be Daphne's. For her, it was the start of a series not only of trips, but of meetups, or dare I say, liaisons, with Elmer Rice. Although both Daphne and Elmer were married, it has long been believed that they had an affair that lasted for several years. Daphne, though, was not the only Milne who likely strayed in the 1930s. At the same time that she was making trips to New York, Alan became increasingly close with an actress named Lenora Corbett. She appeared in a few of Alan's plays, including Other People's Lives. It has been considered highly likely that there was an affair involved. However, by 1941, Lenora had left England for the United States, and if their attachment hadn't ended before then, it certainly did at that point because they never met again. Despite this period of marital unrest, Daphne and Alan remained together, and while it is possible that they never reclaimed the heady days of when they were newlyweds, there is no doubt that they found one another again and appreciated and loved each other for the rest of their marriage. Professionally, Alan continued to work. He made another foray into the world of children's entertainment in the early 1930s when he saw his adaptation of The Wind in the Willows on stage Willows was one of Milne's favorite books. Of his own writing, he published books like Four Days Wonder, a novel, and Peace with Honor. Peace with Honor was Milne's major treatise against war. We learned last time that he was a pacifist, and that participating in World War I made him even more convinced the horrors of war needed to be prevented from ever occurring again. Well, in the 1930s, things were well on their way toward the outbreak of World War II. Allen had big feelings about the rise of threats, identifying as a liberal, which he defined as one who hates fascism and communism equally. In 1939, Allen's autobiography, It's Too Late Now, was published shortly after Britain entered World War II, and Allen turned his attention to the war. Although he was a pacifist, he did not call for people to ignore the war or go against it. No, Allen was very clear that the existence of Hitler was well beyond anything that he could have imagined when he was calling for an end to war. He firmly believed that peace was not possible so long as Hitler existed, and to call for peace while knowing what Hitler was doing was to say you would want peace with Hitler. This would allow Hitlerism to continue in some way, and that could not be allowed. Allen was very vocal about the fact that killing Hitler was the only way to secure any form of true and acceptable peace. Many of his thoughts about Hitler's existence necessitating war were published in a pamphlet companion to Peace with Honor called War with Honor. 
It should be no surprise then when I tell you that Alan was 100% supportive when he learned that his son Christopher, now entering his 20s, wanted to enter the military and join in the war effort. By 1940, Christopher was, much like his father had once been, a student at Cambridge University studying mathematics. Soon, he would, also much like his father had once done, participate in a world war. The catalyst for his decision to join up was the death of flying ace Edgar Kane, known as Cobber. Kane was being sent back to England from the front on rest when he decided to execute a series of aerial rolls to mark his departure. After two successful rolls, the attempted third roll resulted in a crash that killed him. Christopher had followed his accomplishments in the newspaper, and when word of his death broke, Christopher was so moved by it that he decided it was time to do something instead of continue on at school. If you have any interest in war memoirs, I highly suggest reading The Path Through the Trees. Although it isn't 100% World War II, Christopher's detailed section on it is very much worth the read. When he decided to join the military, Christopher was determined to work his way up through the ranks instead of securing a commission. He did this because he wanted to prove to himself that he had earned it if he became an officer. The opportunity arose for him to join a Royal Engineer Training Battalion, only he was rejected from service because his excited trembling during the physical was marked as a potential health issue. Luckily, he was able to get reconsidered and officially joined up. Again, like his father, there are so many parallels here. Christopher's role in the military was more technical than combative. He trained as an engineer, although most of his initial skills on the topic came from reading books by George Ellis. By his own calculations, Christopher spent five years in the army, four of them with the 56th London Division. Although two and a half of those years were spent in Italy, Christopher's time in the war took him to many places, including Iraq, Egypt, Tripoli, Beirut, Jerusalem, and very notably, he witnessed the surrender of Axis forces in Tunisia. One event that he discussed in his memoirs that I found intriguing was his engagement with clearing mines. He said with his typical tongue-in-cheek tone, so here was my ambition, to find a lot of mines and defuse them, preferably in moderately heroic circumstances. Well, he did get to work identifying and clearing mines, and was among the first to identify a new kind that he said became known as the Africa mine. But it wasn't all victories. Christopher contracted malaria, but recovered, and later, in the midst of an argument over when his division would relinquish a formerly German field kitchen to another, he was wounded by enemy shells and required surgery to remove shrapnel from his head. After World War II, the Milne family dynamic changed dramatically. Christopher did return to Cambridge and complete his degree, only it wasn't in mathematics now. He switched to a focus on English. Further, Christopher said that his experiences abroad caused him to grow away from his parents, particularly his father, and find his own path as a man. He also had his first experience with love, capital L, while in Italy. There, he met a woman named Hedda, who stole his heart and to whom he was temporarily engaged. The relationship fizzled out, but this was okay, because on February 5th, 1948, at 7 p.m., 
Christopher Milne met his future wife, and she would be a major source of family conflict. The story goes like this. When Christopher was set up in London, figuring out what he wanted to do with his life, he had a suggestion from a relative. His step-grandmother, that is, his mother Daphne's stepmother, put him in touch with his cousin Leslie, whom he had never met. The reason he hadn't met her was because Daphne and Leslie's father, Aubrey, were siblings who had not been on speaking terms for many, many years. The cause of the alienation was a series of disagreements. One was that after World War I, where Aubrey was a part of the Royal Air Force, he refused to finish the degree he had started at Oxford and, scandal, married a woman named Irene, who was older than him and a writer, and that Daphne did not approve. Further, Aubrey got into a really bad habit of asking the Milnes for money and then not repaying them. Eventually, it was enough to put a complete stop to the relationship and cause their respective children to have no connection with each other until Daphne and Aubrey's stepmother interfered. The way she saw it, there was no reason that the children shouldn't know each other because of the parents having issues. So it was that Leslie de Selincourt, daughter of Daphne's estranged brother Aubrey, ended up meeting Christopher at his home. The pair made dinner together, with him making an omelette and she fried potatoes, though neither one much liked what the other was making. Although Christopher was careful to point out that this was not a love-at-first-sight situation, he did say that they soon learned that they enjoyed being in each other's presence whether or not they were actively doing anything together. He sweetly explained it as, Together we were yet separate, touching yet silent. She and I each engaged with our own thoughts, yet lost and lonely without the presence of each other. Things progressed to where Christopher met Leslie's parents, the uncle and aunt he never knew, and in April he proposed to her following a lengthy walk in the countryside. Not only were the Milnes upset because they felt like they lost their son to the enemy camp, but also because Christopher's choice of bride was his first cousin. This didn't stop the couple, and they married on July 24, 1948. Both sets of parents attended, though it didn't cause any sort of family reconciliation. In fact, the truth is, from this point forward, Christopher and his parents rarely interacted. If, like me, most of the pictures you've seen of Christopher were when he was a child, I highly suggest checking out the blog post for this episode, where I included a picture of adult Christopher with Leslie around the time of their marriage. By 1951, Christopher and Leslie were no longer even living in the same area of England as Alan and Daphne. They had moved across the country to the southwest and settled in the town of Dartmouth in Devon, where they opened Harbour Bookshop. They were happy to say goodbye to London, a place where Alan Milne may have found much success. But Christopher was unable to soar and ended up frustrated. Dartmouth was selected because Leslie had family ties to the region and liked the seaside, and they found a location where they believed an independent bookshop could thrive. Much like with World War II, Christopher's The Path Through the Trees gives wonderful details about this era, including diary entries from their period of setting up the shop and building their business. He emphasized that one mustn't confuse a desire to buy books with a desire to read them, 
and talks at length about the different types of book buyers, such as those who use books already cluttering up their shelves as a reason not to buy new ones, and those who will only buy paperbacks. Perhaps most importantly, though, Christopher and Leslie's bookshop was a success. But as their star was on the rise, Allen's was unfortunately on the decline. Although he had still been writing on occasion, the majority of his income came from the children's books of the 1920s. In 1952, he published Year In, Year Out, which he called A Calendar of Disconnected Thoughts and Memories. It was well received, which was good because ultimately it would be his last published book. Soon after its release, Allen suffered a horrible stroke that left him in terribly bad shape. An operation was done that was considered incredibly risky, but there was also a possibility of complete recovery. Well, it actually left him in worse shape than he had been before. From then on, Allen was under constant medical supervision. Daphne had difficulty handling her husband's failing health, and, given the state of their relationship, Christopher visited only once or twice. The end of Alan's life was further marked by a major change in personality, making him difficult and bitter. In January of 1956, Alan Milne passed away. He was 74 years old. The memorial service was held, Christopher attended, and it would be the last time he saw his mother. The period surrounding the end of Alan's life was one of supreme frustration for Christopher, despite being someone who had long avoided the spotlight. And I should have mentioned earlier, Christopher avoided public speaking in general because of a persistent stammer. Anyway, despite being a generally private person, Christopher's frustration led him to speak to the press, resulting in an article which actually said that he felt Alan was a good, if imperfect, father, but which also included the now infamous assertion that he would never get over his dislike of being the real Christopher Robin. Understanding the complexities of what was going on in Christopher's life at the time, his family being estranged, his father nearing the end of his life, it helps us to see why he would say those things. One downside to it is that the real Christopher Robin hated everything is a story that still circulates every so often today, when, as with most things, it was more complicated than that. Heck, even Alan, who we know wanted to move away from his association with Pooh, softened toward the character late in life. As we have seen kind of over the course of this episode, the negatives and positives that happened to this family were often close enough together that narratively they balance out. Such continues to be the case here. Only months after the death of his father, Christopher had something to celebrate the birth of his and Leslie's daughter, Claire. Born with cerebral palsy, Claire's life would not be an independent one. She needed special help, so she attended a boarding school not far from her parents' home. Christopher's memoir talks openly about how he and Leslie had to come to terms with their daughter's condition and how he personally sought to help her. Christopher's long-standing love of carpentry was to be incredibly useful now. Viewing his talents as a combination of his father's math skills and his mother's competent hands, he set about looking for ways to enhance Claire's quality of life. Some examples of his accomplishments include that he adapted plates and utensils into a form that allowed her to feed herself 
and that he transformed the pedals on a traditional tricycle to move in a different motion, better to work with Claire's range of leg motion so that she could ride it. When Claire was home, and you know, eventually school ended and she was home all the time, Leslie and Christopher split their time between caring for her and tending to the bookshop. Leslie would take the mornings at home and Christopher the afternoons. In his writing about raising Claire, Christopher was a passionate advocate, remarking, those who travel in wheelchairs ask only that they can go where the rest of us go, without too much fuss, without too much loss of dignity. He further argued, it is a sad fact that much of the equipment designed for the disabled is inefficient and nearly all of it is ugly. How unfair is it that a person who most needs a chair should so often have just the one, and so far from beautiful, while the rest of us, who need chairs only now and again, possess so many? It is no wonder then that, in his later years, as he was contemplating retirement, he fantasized about starting a company with Claire to make furniture for the disabled. In 1971, 15 years after Christopher last saw his mother, Daphne, at his father's memorial service, she passed away. Her death caused a wide range of emotions, though he later recalled that he was not particularly sad about it. To give you an idea of how estranged they were, he learned that she sold Cotchford Farm, his parents' beloved country residence, and moved to London because of the change in her return address when he received a rare letter from her. Christopher was very proud of the fact that he had made his living entirely on his own. Although people speculated that he was living off of poo money, he insisted that his mother had complete control of that estate and it was not benefiting him in the slightest. With her passing, part of that money was designated to come to him. Christopher didn't initially know what to do about it. He didn't want the money that came from the fictionalized version of himself. But it was in part that it would help pay for Claire's care that caused him to eventually accept it. He also learned that his mother had destroyed all of Alan's possessions. Writing a few years removed from it, Christopher explained that he now understood that it was what his father would have wanted. But when he first learned about it, it was like a kick to the chest. Sitting with all of this, his mother's death, the estrangement from both his parents, and the loss of his father's possession caused Christopher to think about his life. Soon, he decided it was time to write a memoir in part to preempt any would-be A.A. Milne biographers from writing about his father. The resulting project was The Enchanted Places, published in 1974, which he said was done from a place of needing to do it for himself and for his father. So there would be something left behind about him. It was also therapeutic for Christopher, allowing him to revisit his favorite memories and warm once again to topics like poo, that had been sore spots for some time. The Enchanted Places would later be followed by The Path Through the Trees, which talked about his non-poo life, and other publications which meditated on topics like personal philosophy. This coincided roughly with Christopher and Leslie entering their retirement phase. They slowly backed away from the shop, eventually leaving it completely. Uh, it would eventually close in 2011. A fun fact is that in September of 1981, 
Christopher appeared at the London Zoo for the unveiling of a statue of a bear in honor of his father. I put a picture from that event on the blog post for this episode. He also softened regarding a biography of his father. When hopeful writer Anne Thwaite contacted him about the idea, he not only gave her his blessing, but as she recalled, he made no conditions and did not see the book until it was published. His reaction relieved us both. As I mentioned at the top of part one, Anne's book, in conjunction with Alan and Christopher's writings, have been without question the most important sources for my work on these episodes. Only a few years after Anne's biography of Alan was published, Christopher passed away in April of 1996. Not long after Christopher's death, Leslie and Michael Brown, a solicitor family friend who once dealt with Alan's estate, spearheaded the creation of the Claire Milne Trust. According to the trust's official website, the trust used money from the sale of copyright royalties of Alan's books to both care for Claire and to help others with disabilities. It is, as we know Christopher suggested, kind of, in his memoir, as if Alan was taking care of the granddaughter he never met. Sadly, in 2012, Claire passed away, and her mother, Leslie, has also since passed. However, the trust named for Claire still exists, and it regularly gives grants to small government-registered charities in the regions of Devon and Cornwall that assist people with disabilities. With Claire's death, so ended the direct line of descendants from Alan Milne. As an extension of that, so does our two-part look at this family's history. If you look at the scope of these episodes, from Alan's birth in 1882 to Claire's death in 2012, that means we've covered a whopping 130 years in two episodes' time. I hope you have enjoyed learning about Alan, Daphne, Christopher, Leslie, and Claire as much as I have enjoyed researching and talking about them. I hope you'll take the time to look at our further reading for these episodes and maybe even read some of Alan and Christopher's writings. I promise they don't disappoint. Anyway, thank you again for joining me on this adventure in family biography. Don't forget to find us on social media. We come up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and YouTube if you search for Footnoting History. And remember, the best stories are in the footnotes.